Welcome to the System Speak podcast. If you would like to support our efforts at sharing our story, finding stigma about dissociative identity disorder, and educating the community and the world about trauma and dissociation, please go to our website at www.systemspeak.org where there's a button for donations and you can offer a one-time donation to support the podcast or become an ongoing subscriber. You can also support us on Patreon for early access to updates and what's unfolding for us. Simply search for Emma Sunshaw on Patreon. We appreciate the support, the positive feedback, and you sharing our podcast with others. We are also super excited to announce the release of our new online community, a safe place for listeners to connect about the podcast. It feels like any other social media platform where you can share, respond, join groups, and even attend events with us, including the new monthly meetups that start this month. Go to our webpage at www.systemspeak.org to join the community. We're excited to see you there. Kirsten Stock was born and raised in the former East Germany. During her college years, Kirsten volunteered for the Blue Cross, an organization offering help and support to alcohol addicts. She got involved with her whole heart and it changed her perspective again and opened up the opportunity to become a psychotherapist. After finishing the diploma in 1988, She started working in a day clinic for alcohol addicts and at the same time started her training in psychoanalysis, psychodynamic, and body-oriented psychotherapy. On the humanitarian initiative of a reverend, Kirsten, her former supervisor, and a solicitor founded a nonprofit organization in 1990 for the reintegration of released prisoners and inmates of forensic psychiatric units. Kirsten conducted psychodynamic group work in different prisons. From 1995 on, she worked for nonprofit organizations, the Child Care and Social and Probation Services, and amongst others, specialized in working with difficult, complex, dangerous, and unmanageable clients, like former inmates, mercenaries from the Yugoslavian Civil War, punks, Nazis, and young heroin addicts. Her first encounter and subsequent interest in dissociative disorders started in 1997. In 2005, Kirsten relocated to West Cork in Ireland and has since moved to Malta. She established her own psychotherapy practice in 2007 and is licensed by the IACP. She joined ISSTD in 2010. Kirsten is mainly working with adult trauma survivors from different countries and cultural backgrounds. A high percentage of her caseloads are clients with dissociative disorders. In 2019, Kirsten was awarded an MA for Integrative Psychotherapy from CIT Cork. Welcome, Kirsten Stach. My name is Kirsten Stach. I'm um, I'm a native German person, but uh, I have lived in Ireland for 15 years 
And in December, I moved to Malta. So now I live and work and practice here in Malta. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm 60 years old. I'm for 33 years in my profession as a social worker and as a therapist. And I, yeah, I really love my job. I think I'm really, really lucky because of that. So um, after all the years, that's still perfectly fine with me. And um, yeah, I live here in Malta with my partner, with two dogs, two cats. And um, I'm very interested in history, archaeology. So I'm in a really right place here because it's an amazing history. And um, yeah, this probably, I have the whole balcony full with flowers and plants. So I think um, given my job as a therapist, that's actually a really good thing. Um, loads of very pleasant self-care, I would say so. That's so lovely. Yeah. How did you get into mm -hmm. studying about trauma and dissociation? How did that start for you? I was from the beginning when I started in a clinic for alcohol addicts in the former East Germany in Rostock, which was actually a great clinic, which would be very good today. We worked with psychodynamic approach and it was uh, group work and individual work so it was a really pleasant place to work so from the beginning with working with addicts i worked with very traumatized people without that it would especially be yeah called this way i think in the 80s you know in germany it wasn't common so yeah it was normal you work with addicts they had some awful things in their life and you worked with them through that and uh, later in germany i worked with marginalized groups like uh, prisoners i worked for five years in prison and did psychodynamic group work so very traumatized, very traumatizing individuals. I worked with heroin addicts and their families, with asylum seekers, uh, with homeless people, so with uh, punks, two full houses full of punks. They were lovely. Uh, I worked with uh, young Nazis. Um, I think quite successful to normalize their life and their thinking and everything. So, and how I got directly into trauma was um, in 2010 in Ireland. And I remember that night because I had a client who I know now was very, very severely dissociated, obviously it's a very severe DID and a lot of hallucination. Um, yeah, a lot of psychotic episodes. And 
one evening after he had left, I said, no, I don't know enough. So I had to do something. And I sat on the internet and I found ISSTD. So I was probably very lucky. And uh, I wrote to them. So, and eventually started my my training with ISSTD in I believe October 2010 and uh, from there yeah I it was a very conscious yeah uh, really really good journey where I could look back at all the work I had done in the past and yes I think I had mainly worked with traumatized people all my life yeah but now I had the framework for that and uh, concept. So that was great. My friend, I have a friend in Germany who says that in German, it is not dissociative identity disorder, that it is dissociative identity structure. I don't know about that, to be honest. Um, I Then I think, you know, the my uh, good colleagues uh, from and uh, friends from the Trauma Institute in Leipzig. Um, I think they still would call it dissociated identity disorder. So that would be new for me, to be honest. I have to ask them because we have a symposium at the weekend. So I find out because the symposium is very, very interesting and multidisciplinary on dissociated identity disorder. So then I know more. That's interesting. I would be interesting to hear what what you find out because it made me think again about the difference between sort of structure and process and what's going on, but also even just yeah. what you just shared about a conference with multidisciplinary, like that's really important, the whole team. Yes. They're doing something right. This is, you know, and it is not, I think it's not so common to do this way of a conference, yeah? Because they invite, for instance, medical doctors, GPs, uh, speech therapists, uh, even singing teachers, yeah. So you know, it's it's amazing. So how they basically work together from a lot of different sides, yeah. And um, I remember two years ago the conference where there was, uh, you know, the singing teacher who we all had to sing in the conference, which was really really great practice. And um, she showed us a video from a young man who was severely dissociated and he stood in different places in the room in colored areas. I think it was like sport rings, like hula hoop rings. And he sang the same song, which was a classic German song in all his different self-states. And it was really interesting to see that, it was amazing. And the better he got, yeah, the better he felt, uh, then 
all of his parts sang together and this sounded completely different so you know to see it from that side was actually very eye-opening was brilliant that's beautiful that's amazing yeah yeah so i really look forward to that symposium you know um and um yeah look the uh, Irina and Ralf Vogt, you know, they are members of ISSTD as well, and they are fellows. Ralf definitely is a fellow. And look, they did presentation at conferences here as well, but um, it would be different, obvious, when they do their own conference, you know? That's incredible. Even Even the part about you singing, I know that when I'm in America, a lot of the conferences, you are sitting and you are listening. And when I am in Europe, a lot of the conferences, there is there are lectures and there are things that you learn, but there's also that it can be very experiential differently than only sitting and listening. Mm -hmm. It's a cultural difference. Yeah, that is, you know, that may be possible. This was actually two years ago, the first trauma conference I attended in Germany. Yeah. So, but it was really good experience. Yeah. Otherwise I attended all conferences from ISSTD and they were, you know, I really, really enjoyed it. And I'm probably eternally thankful, you know, for, for everything that I learned. So I, yeah, I came every year since 2010, so. It's helped us so much as well, and it has really made a significant difference, like really changed our understanding of trauma and dissociation both. Yeah. Um, how, how would you define dissociation if you were working with a client or someone? How would you explain dissociation to them? When I work with clients, I do a lot of sketching, you know, or images and so, and um, I would explain it, you know, in a way that when somebody is really, really small, you know, so you have no power, you cannot run away, you cannot fight back. And very often in family or other situation, there is no hiding place at all. So that as a child, you escape in your mind. This is the only chance you have. Basically, you know, the separation between the body and the mind that, you know, on the, on the onset, before the age of three, that this is the only chance a child has, yeah? And uh, that this can be combined with an out-of-body experience where they basically, as an example, one young man described it, he escaped into a photograph that was on the wall, yeah? He went into this photo and then he was in a landscape, yeah? And um, I would use, I find it very helpful, you know, to go from the uh, attachment side as well. So uh, I would explain the attachment theory in a, you know, hopefully, 
I try my best understandable way to every client I work with. And I find when they have time to think about it at home or they, you know, over the week before the next session, it brings a lot of things to mind. Yeah. And so the approach to dissociation via the attachment theory would be that very oversimplified. If you have dad and dad is drinking heavily, yeah, the baby doesn't know what it is, but the baby would know that is so different and the child has to totally suppress their own needs and completely tune in to an probably erratic or violent or very angry adult. I mean, this could be mom as well. So that the child adjusts to the different states that the parent displays and is basically forced to develop self-states that can deal with the accordingly how the parents act, yeah? And um, another thing I explain as well, so it takes me a good while to, you know, sometimes different sessions to explain it is via polyvagal theory and uh, the window of tolerance. So I kind of combine it in my explanation and um, it's the three different states and that in an extreme hyperarousal or hypoarousal state, so the immobilized state, that then the mind, the nervous system takes care that the way the brain works will change. Yeah. So that um, any kind of integration will be interrupted for the benefit of a child that has no other escape than to compartmentalize things and put things in containers in the in the mind. And I do sketches for that, or uh, I show, I have some charts with uh, brain images and um, that usually makes sense to them. And, um, yeah, then that sometimes obvious, uh, it's very, very harsh for somebody to uh, realize and then maybe accept it is a possibility Yeah, that uh, they may have, you know, a dissociated disorder, which is not a nice word for it because uh, I would really point out it's a very elaborated and creative uh, adaptation process, yeah, of a mind of a tormented child, that makes sense. There is something neutralizing even about understanding the brain and how it works, as opposed to the shame of what's happened to me or the shame of how crazy I feel because of what's going on in my head? I, you know, I feel that, um, you know, what helps a lot uh, always when, when you take it with some humor, yeah? Not to, you know, not to ridicule anything or diminish it, but, you know, with, with, 
as humor, you know, it can be sometimes very uplifting and very relieving. Yeah, when uh, a lady I worked with for a long time after months where we very slowly and reluctantly started to work with her parts, then she said, you know, I have another part and I didn't want to tell you because then you really think I'm crazy. I have a speaking hedgehog. So, and I think we burst out laughing, you know, despite, of course, I take it serious. But in this moment, you know, that was somehow, you know, was a great situation and was very funny. And eventually we investigated where does the speaking hedgehog come from? Yeah. And we could figure out that she took this character in out of a children's cartoon where there was a little hedgehog and then he got angry. He had really flames coming out of his spikes and uh, he could talk and he was very cute. But when he somebody angered him, he could really defend himself. So, you know, in the end, it made so much sense. Yeah. There was nothing crazy about it. Yeah. This is uh, not, I don't know. I don't even think it is crazy. It wouldn't come to my mind. I think I realized that in Germany in the 90s, I think at some day I realized that uh, I totally normalized these things to the point where I had to accompany a long-term client to some authority. I don't know what place it was, either to a doctor or to the welfare office or so. And um, everyone in the city center stared at us, really. People were, you know, they sometimes stopped and stared at it. And I thought, oh my God, these crazy people, what's wrong here, you know? And then obviously I realized the man had total tattoo, his whole face was tattooed, which was not very common in the 90s in Germany. So for me, I knew him for so long, I didn't see it anymore, you know? For me, it was completely normal, it didn't play a role in regards to him as a person. And then I said it to him and, and he said, yeah, yeah, I know, look, let them, you know, and um, yeah. So it was somehow it showed me that I don't take anything as not normal in this regard. If understanding the brain is neutralizing somehow of the shame because it puts in context what the natural response is, then understanding where some of those images of parts or parts of self or ego states or something, um, where those self states come from, like your example with the book, somehow gives context and helps it make sense. And that was an interesting example you gave of realizing, oh, it came from this and it's connected to this. And that's how it happened when there was a child seeing this and or like going into the photograph, like you gave that example. And I think that that also helps because when we have that phobia of parts, then there is this hesitancy to try or to engage or to just be afraid of what we don't even know and being able to connect some parts to context like that 
help put some of those pieces into place and give a, I don't know, foundation of being able to have a context or an understanding of why that part is there or where that part came from or how a child brain would even do that. And that's been interesting as culture changes with technology because now I have newer clients who are younger who some of their parts come from video games or movies or something instead of just books or or, or other contexts that have been traditionally written about in books or something in in clinical texts. And so it's been interesting to see sort of that shift and that unfolding with younger clients. But but regardless, having, I don't know, there's something about just having information, whether that's context about where an altar came from or context about the brain and why it works and how it works and what's going on, actually. There's something that just neutralizes either that shame or those phobias or the pieces that make dissociation so scary. So enough that you can work with it and get started, I guess. There is, you know, I would say, I don't know who said it or where I read it, but it it said uh, this is a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. Yeah? And I, I think that basically boils it down to the point, yeah? That everything somebody develops in their mind is a response to something that they experience. And uh, so this is, especially as a child, it's a normal response, yeah, to whatever happens around them. And I just uh, talked to a colleague here in Malta, and she said, in Italy, there is a very progressive approach when young children... Uh, you know, are brought, let's say, to a child psychologist or therapist or psychiatrist, and there is something not right with them, they work with the parents and not with the child. So that means, first of all, they do everything for and with the parents. And then later, when that is clarified, and the parents worked or are working on their own issues, then they bring the child in. And I think that is the, you know, really the right order, yeah, to put something from the head on the feet. Um, yeah, I found that really, really helpful. And um, yeah, to say, you know, that everything somebody, maybe the strangest OCD symptoms or reactions, yeah, or things that don't seem to make any sense. Then in therapy, when we can make sense out of it, yeah, then, yeah, it is, you know, the whole shame goes away. Yeah, then uh, things fall into place. And that, you know, that is big relief to see that. Yeah, that uh, takes a huge burden of people.
that changes everything when you're addressing the whole system, even when that system is externally, like with a child and the actual parents, not just DID. Yeah, you know that it has a name. Okay, I mean, they had to put some name to, let's say, a group of symptoms, you know, that, you know, come up repeatedly. But yeah, it's not about the name, you know, it's about what is behind it for a person. So um, it's very different. Sometimes people are relieved when they know there is a description or a name for that. And um, sometimes they don't like it. And I can adjust to that, you know. Um, the person has to feel comfortable with however we name it or call it, you know, or if people are more comfortable with when they say parts or self-states or so, um, or when they say different emotional states, it's uh, perfectly fine. It has to, they have to be comfortable with it. There is such compassion and attunement in that adjusting approach by what they're able to tolerate and what their perspective is. How would you apply that with a DID system internally? Both the that level of compassion of making the approach even safe, as well as the the responsibility of actually doing that work like with the child and the parents of the parents really need to step up and do their work how does that apply like internally to a DID system both of those pieces the compassion and that piece of focusing on where that's coming from not just what is wrong yeah I I think you know what makes I would say from my work experience what makes most sense for people is when um, we basically talk about it like it's an internal team that saved you in a really difficult, you know, in difficult times in your life. Yeah, that, you know, regardless how twisted or strange or uh, irrational it may appear, but this internal system saved you and made sure you would survive these things. So when people become an adult, these things become, I would explain, maladaptive as a, you know, I find the expression quite helpful. So I would explain that properly, that things that a child developed in a desperate situation to help themselves or to somehow stay under the radar, defend themselves, go into hiding as an adult are very often counterproductive. And what we want to do, we want a good internal team and we may have to change the job description for some of the parts that they are first of all functioning in daily life but it's not only about functioning people want 
to be content and sometimes obvious, want to be happy and want to feel safe. So, yeah, obvious starts a long way. And uh, I found that really helpful when Dr. Kluft said some stage the doing better comes before the feeling better. Yeah. But um, that we, I would really, yeah, I had, um, maybe it's better to explain it as an example. I talked on Saturday to a young man who is an IT specialist and um, in in Germany, and um, he has a voice that constantly is coming in with self-doubts, uh, putting him down. So the unfortunately typical thing. Uh, he's very scared to make mistakes, despite he doesn't make mistakes. But this is obvious, puts a huge strain on his daily work. And uh, this doesn't stop. And now they want to buy a house. And now the voice is saying, oh, you know, are you sure you want the house? Are you sure you want to live there? Do you know what is when you lose your job? And um, we could really, really figure out that the voice won't go away, this part of him, because he said, I hate it so much, I want to get rid of it. And uh, so that was basically when we could very productively discuss that uh, you can't get rid of it, yeah, because this part, when you were young, had a very important role, call it anticipatory obedience, call it staying under the radar, that you couldn't be hurt more than you already were hurt, yeah? So, but now, to hate this part, yeah? You know how it is, yeah? When you have a whole school class and uh, the teacher would cast out one child because it misbehaves and, you know, expose it to the class and shame it, the child would get worse, yeah? So it's a little bit like that. And uh, it made sense and we agreed that he writes a letter or email, however, to himself, to this part. Um, everything he feels, but one thing is very important. He has to write that he is thankful for what the part did for him when he was small, yeah? So, and he will not forget that. He understands why it is still acting like it acts, but uh, now it's about doing it better, yeah? To do it better than it was done to this point. And uh, so basically discuss it on eye level with that part, yeah? Uh, with respect. I would say, if that makes sense. This conversation continues in part two.
Thank you for listening. Your support really helps us feel less alone while we sort through all of this and learn together. Maybe it will help you in some ways too. You can connect with us on Patreon and join us for free in our new online community by going to our website at www.systemspeak.org. If there's anything we've learned in the last four years of this podcast, it's that connection brings healing. We look forward to connecting with you.